0: Well, I want to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and to turn with me to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to start with verse 14, uh, reading verse 15 and also in verse 16. Um, And and while you're turning there, I I do want to give you three other passages that I I want you maybe to write down. Um, I don't know as we're going through this, we're going to have a lot of time to turn there and look at it. But uh, there's, there's uh, three other passages that I think are related to Genesis 3, specifically in verse 15, that I'm going to just touch on a little bit, but I, I want you just to write them down and maybe go back home and, um, and read them and make sure that what I'm saying about it is true. So uh, Genesis 3, 14 through 16, and also Galatians 4 and verse 4, Roman chapter 16 and verse 20. And also, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. Now, I find uh, something a little bit fascinating. It's, it's not something I would ever spend time delving into by any means because uh, I'm not that fascinated with it. But uh, the the idea of people tracing their family heritage and history is is really interesting to me Uh, um, like I said it's it's not something that I'm willing to spend the time and the money to to do family trees or to send my DNA off to someone to tell me something about my uh, lineage or something maybe that's something you're into something you enjoy but the, the idea of tracing your family back is is really fascinating to think about where a family have started and how far they have have come and really in as it relates to my own family from, from Thompson's, I'll, the only thing I can really know that much about is my grandma and grandpa, and grandma's still here. Our family basically started, um, you know, Poto became their home. It's not where it started, but it became their home. And then from Poto, the the, grand, the the sons and the, the grandkids have just kind of scattered. And Jen, just to think about, when there's great grandkids and great great grandkids where all they're going to be and so it's it's interesting to think how your family starts with just a husband and wife then they they have a child then that child has kids and they have kids and then they have kids and it just goes on and on and on and there's there's just no telling if you traced your family all the way back to the 1700s where it actually originated in. in Europe maybe uh native American here in America, uh, maybe in the 1900s you were in some other, uh, some other place of the country, and then the land run was happening in 1900s, and then your family came here and they established land and then here you are and so it 's it's really fascinating to think about how it starts in such a small way in a small place, and then all of a sudden it just explodes and goes all over the place and just and just so diverse and it 's really When you think about it, if we go all the way back to the beginning, if we're thinking about being, you know, biblical history, that here we have 7 billion people on this planet, and they all started with one family. They started with Adam and Eve, and then from them, here we have this population of this world that that has happened over this this, uh, enormous amount of time that has transpired. And so that's really a little bit of what I want us to talk about this morning as we're thinking about the book of Genesis 3 and verse 15, especially with our eye toward the Advent season, uh, the Christmas event and the Christ child and how how all of this uh, comes together. And so here's, here's a thought I want you to think about. From one came many. From many came one. And then from that one came many. From one came many. From the many came one, and from the one came many. Now I know at this, at this time that, sounds, that doesn't make any sense, and I'm hoping that by the time that we get to the end of this message that you'll understand exactly where I'm coming from as we're thinking about this, uh, this concept. So before we actually look at Genesis 3, I want us to pray and just ask for God's help as we look at this text together. Father, we thank you so much for all that you have done for us, especially in the context of our service as we've been singing songs about about you and specifically about the, the Christmas event, the incarnation of your son, Jesus Christ, and all the events that surrounded that, that even as the child, Jesus as the child, that he was a king. And he received gifts that were fit for a king. And Father, I just pray that during this time that you will help us to focus on you And on your word. And I pray the prayer of John the Baptist that I may decrease so that you may increase. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So look with me in Genesis 3 and verse 14. And it says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And here really is what I want us to be thinking about is in verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed or your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception and pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. And he shall rule over you. Now these words that we see in verse 14, that they come after the fall. After Adam and Eve had been placed in the garden, in this place, that everything that God did when he created it, every day after he was finished with creation, he looked at it and said it it was good. And then when he created male and female, man and woman, and he placed them in the garden, he said, it is very good. And so everything that God created in his creative order was good. And by good, we mean that it was not tainted by any way, shape, or form, by any evil, sin, death, or anything of that nature. And then when we get into verse chapter 3, we find that something transpires. And you know the event. Hopefully you know this event. There's a serpent. He's described as being more cunning than Any of the beasts of the field that the Lord God has made. And immediately, something should have signaled a problem is when we see the serpent speak. So if you'll notice that the serpent says in verse 1, these are his words, Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And so the, the serpent leads the woman, Eve, and Adam, into sin and to disobedience to God. And when they go into disobedience, they recognize immediately. They know their nakedness. They know that something is wrong. We've done something wrong. Then all of a sudden, God is walking in the cool of the day, in the midst of the day, and they hide themselves. And they try to cover themselves with fig leaves because they know something has gone drastically wrong. And so what we read in this text is what God actually says to both the serpent and to the woman. Consequently, he has effects to the man. You, you see actually what he says to the man in verse 17 all the way into verse 19, that there's, there's judgment. But really in the midst of this judgment, as he pronounces this judgment on both the serpent, he pronounces judgment on the woman, he pronounces judgment on the man. In the middle of it, he's also pronouncing judgment an element of salvation, of redemption. So the fall has happened, sin has happened, you've disrupted this good creation, God's going to exclude you from it, but really in the middle of this, specifically in verse 15, he gives a map, if you will, of how they're going to get back to the garden. How is it that everything is going to be restored? Now, as we read this text, and we have to think about being in the shoes, or maybe the lack of shoes of Adam and Eve, that when they first hear this, this must have been somewhat of an enigma. You know, what does this mean? What, what, what is going on here about this enmity between the woman and between her seed and your seed? And, and what does it mean that, that the serpent is going to bruise your heel and you shall... that uh, the, the offspring of the woman is going to bruise the head of the serpent and the serpent's going to bruise the heel of the woman's offspring. So what, what does all of that even mean? Now, I think what's going on here in this text is that the author of Genesis, Moses, is showing this, and then all throughout the book of Genesis, and really throughout all of the scripture, there's going to be a connection to this. And the key word that's, that's going to, that jumps out here, and that you especially see if you read through Genesis, is the word that's translated seed or offspring. And so that's really what our primary focus this morning is to try to uncover what it exactly does it mean by using this phrase, seed, offspring, and how it actually progresses in the history of redemption and the history of salvation. Now, just a few background things for us to think about before we go further. I think for most of you, you... This is a given, as we think about the identity, first, of the serpent. You know, who is the serpent? And then we ask the second question, who is it, the the offspring, that's going to crush his heel, his head, strike his head? And so, when we look at um, verse 15, it actually gives the reader some direction. The serpent is a mouthpiece of the dark powers that later texts call and identify as Satan. Now, although the Old Testament never identifies the serpent as Satan, he is depicted in the same manner as an adversary. Like Satan in the book of Job, he impugns the character of God and attempts to destroy God. It's one of the first things that comes out of his mouth is he says something derogatory about the character of God. If you look in verse 1, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Did God really say that? Of course he said that. So the serpent, or Satan, who's using the serpent as a mouthpiece, is dismissing the word of God, the truthfulness of God, and of what he said. So he becomes an adversary, and, and he functions in the same way as the Satan character in the book of Job. And in, in Genesis, he does exactly the same, same thing. But when we look a little bit further, that Jesus accuses his Jewish adversaries of being like their father, the devil, using language that alludes to this very event. The clearest reference to the serpent as Satan is found in Revelations 12 and verse 9, which says, So the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old, called the devil and Satan. So when we look at this text and we see what exactly is going on, we see that the serpent is first judged in verse fourteen. He is cursed to the ground to eat dust. This does not mean that the serpent at one point of time had had legs, but it is a metaphor for total defeat. You actually see that in various passages in the Old Testament, Isaiah. 65 in verse 25, which says the wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. Micah 7 in verse 17 says they shall lick the dust like a serpent. So the dust and may also anticipate God's pronouncement of Adam's death in verse 15, where he said, dust you shall return. And the curse upon the serpent includes its final destruction by the offspring of the woman that is noted in verse 15. The seed of the woman is seen as a deliverer. Now notice that there will be and continues to be enmity between the woman and the serpent, between her offspring and the serpent's as well. And the word enmity means the kind of hostility and animosity that people have that are at war with one another. Maybe we can think about this kind of enmity, animosity that's being played out in real time as we consider the news between what's going on in the Middle East with Israel and Gaza. These people have real animosity toward one another. They hate one another, especially on particularly on the side of Gaza because it is their intent within their ruling government is that they want to destroy all of Israel to kill them all. That's really in their charter because they have this hatred and they have this animosity toward these type of, uh, type of people. And so this word enmity has the idea of war in mind, seeking to see the other side destroy. And it indicates, starting with the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, that there's going to be a perpetual life and struggle between the combatants. To be clear, in verse 15... This enmity is instigated by God. He was the one that put enmity between these two sides. So if you'll notice there in verse 15 when he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And we're going to see in just a little bit why it is that he put that enmity between these two sides. The animosity or the enmity will result in the serpent striking the hill Of the woman's offspring, and the woman's offspring striking the head of the serpent's offspring, and these are parallel actions, but the difference in the location is noticeable. The serpent will deliver a blow only at the heel of the woman's offspring, and the woman's uh, and and uh, and the woman's offspring will deliver a blow at the serpent's head. Now, the blow to the woman's offspring is indeed painful and can be serious. But the strike to the head delivered to the serpent is mortal. In fact, it's an appropriate metaphor when you consider this judgment on this serpent. Just think about this imagery just for a moment. If you're out in the woods and there's a serpent that's there, what are you going to immediately do? If it, if it Well, besides maybe run away. <laughs> but maybe if you have a, somewhat of a mind, if you just don't think that, if it just slithers right across next to you, maybe one of your reactions is, is you're going to lift up your foot and you're going to crush its head. And so that's kind of the imagery that we're seeing here. And with the crushing of the head, we're talking about a mortal blow. The striking of a hill, obviously, from a poisonous serpent can be mortal, but there is time for, you know, maybe healing of it, maybe an antivin or something of that nature. And so that's, that's the point of the, the imagery. So there's a parallel, but there's a noticeable difference. The serpent's offspring is going to strike the heel of the woman's offspring. It's going to be a, a serious blow, but it's not going to be as mortal as the woman's offspring crushing the head of the serpent. And So that's, that's kind of the point that's, that's used here in this text. In fact, according to Paul, he actually tells us that it is God. God himself who will crush the serpent and Satan. And he says, it was, he quotes this and he says, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Now, there's, we're going to come back to this in a little bit, but if you heard that, it said, and the God of peace will crush Satan under whose feet? Your feet shortly. So this is going to relate to the offspring of the woman. Now, Go, going back here and thinking about this idea of seed or offspring, as some of you may have in your translation, it's really important to note that its its usages here. So the enmity that exists is not confounded just to the serpent and the woman in the garden, but will continue with their offspring. The word seed and offspring is an important word used in the Book of Genesis and is traced in significant ways throughout all of the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. In fact, of the 172 times that this word that is translated seed and offspring is used in the Old Testament, it occurs 59 times in Genesis. This is the first time it has occurred, and it provides a really important, important information of how to think about its occurrence afterwards. And by the way, there's only two times that the seed or offspring is connected to a woman in the book of Genesis. So, here in chapter 3 and verse 15, and then in chapter 4 and verse 25, where it says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And I really find that interesting. And I have a little bit of a of an idea of why that, why that is and how it relates to this, the Christmas event and the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. But only two times in the book of Genesis is this word seed and offspring connected to a woman. And especially in chapter 3 and verse 15, that the seed of the woman is going to be the deliverer. He is going to be the one that strikes the head of the serpent. Now, just hold, just hold that. I've got a few things that I'm asking you to hold. But hold that in the back of your mind, too, and hopefully we can, we can ever uncover that. And if I forget to do that, just ask me afterwards, and I'll tell you what it is. But there are several things to notice about the usage of this word seed and offspring. The first one is that the word is a collective noun. This means that it has one form for both singular and plural. That's like our English word, offspring. You, you, you can't make offspring plural by adding an S to it. The same thing is with sheep. The plural form of, the singular form of sheep is sheep. The plural form of sheep is sheep. I bet when you woke up this morning, you didn't think you were going to get an English lesson, did you? Well, you're welcome. But, uh, but, it, is, but it is important. I mean, it's just not just just empty talk, and, uh, but it's important of, of how this word is used and how it's actually developed throughout the context of the Bible. And so the way that you determine whether that word is singular or plural is by its context, by the articles and by the pronouns that refer back to it. So it's important to understand this as it relates to the message of the Bible that goes along with the thought that I'm I'm trying to develop here that from the one comes many, and from the many comes one, and then again from the many comes one as it relates. To offspring. And so the word offspring and seed can be used talking about a singular person, but also it can be used talking about many people that are part of this offspring or part of these descendants. The second thing that's important about this word in Genesis 3 is that the seed of the offspring in Genesis envisions an individual deliverer. And the reason that we can say this is because if you look there in verse 15, so you have this word that can be either plural or it can be singular. How do you know which one it is? Well, notice how the seed is referred to in the latter part of verse 15. He, it's a masculine pronoun, singular. He, the singular person, shall bruise your head. And so, in Genesis 3.15, it's not just envisioning, it doesn't envision just a multitude of people that's going to come out. It actually envisions a singular person, a singular deliverer, who's going to strike the head, who's going to crush the head of this evil serpent who has destroyed and invaded God's good and glorious creation. And then there's, there's a continuity that happens, of the experience regarding the offspring. So as mentioned earlier, the enmity that exists is not just between the serpent and the woman, but also between their respective offspring. Genesis shows this in the chapters that follow. In chapter 4 and verse 1, Eve is pregnant with her first child. Her response appears to have Genesis 3 and verse 15 in mind. She's excited. She's excited for this prospect of the fact that she has had a child. If you look in verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And so Eve is pregnant. She has her first child. Her response appears to have what God had promised in chapter 3 and verse 15. From your seed is going to strike the head Of a serpent. And this creates a renewed dependence and faith in God. Now, it's interesting to me that the narrator posits Eve's response with the absence of the word offspring. Now, when Abel is killed and God replaces replaces Abel with Seth, this is what she says in chapter 4 and verse 25. She says, and she bore a son and named him Seth for God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel whom Cain has killed. And so what that tells us is that the author of Genesis Moses is showing us that Cain is not that seed. He's not that offspring. And the way that we can see that is because we see how these offsprings they began to splinter off into two different directions. If you read the genealogy of Cain, you'll find out that it is made up of polygamy, sexual immorality and murder. So you have one seed that's going this way and you have another seed that's going the other way. And when you read the genealogy of Seth, it tells us that when Seth was born that men began to call on the name of the Lord. And then out of the lineage of Seth comes Enoch. And Enoch walked with God. And he was taken up. And then out of the lineage of Seth, it comes Noah. And the Bible tells us that Noah himself also walked with God. He was the only righteous man in that generation. And so what, what the author of Genesis is telling us is that you have these two seeds that are going. You have the seed of the serpent that's going through the line of Cain. And you have the seed of the woman that's going through the, through the lineage of Seth. You have these two separate genealogies and two separate offspring. One offspring obviously is characterized by the evil of the serpent and the other by the woman. And you can note the striking differences between them. And the offspring of Seth leads to Abraham. And God promises to make him the father of a great nation to multiply his descendants, many offsprings, as the stars in the heaven and the sands on the seashore and from the seed of Abraham. So... Now, notice what's happening here. The woman, God's going to, from her seed, is going to strike the serpent's head, this singular seed, this deliverer. And we're seeing the lineage of this that goes through Seth. And then God promises to Abraham that I'm going to multiply your offspring. So you've got this one seed that now becomes many, that becomes a great nation. That eventually reaches its epoch into the millions, into uh, the house of David, into the United Kingdom. You see this this great nation that came from this seed. And so, from Abraham came the nation of Israel, the seed of the woman, and there was perpetual enmity and conflict between them and the offspring of the serpent and the form of other nations. You. You see that even developing in the book of Genesis, how there is this continued hostility, there's this continuing enmity between God's people and the people of Satan, the people of the serpent. You see that in the form of the nation of Egypt, in the Philistines, in the Canaanites, and so on and, and so forth. You see it over and over again. Now, let's just think about it this way. And this maybe helps us answer the question, of why it was that God put enmity between these two seeds. Why is it that made one person and or nation the offspring of the woman or the offspring of the serpent? It wasn't who they descended from. Cain was the first offspring of Adam and Eve, yet he was not designated as that offspring as Seth was. Faithfulness to God is the key characteristic of the one who is the seed of the woman. And this is still true for us today. And what makes one an offspring of the serpent is their unfaithfulness and hostility to God in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what separated Cain from Abel and Cain from Seth. Abel went to worship God with the fullness of his heart. Cain went to worship God by holding things back. And when God accepted Cain or Abel's worship... Instead of Cain being repentant, Cain aroused with jealousy and anger and he killed his brother. Unfaithfulness to the Lord. And you see that unfaithfulness develop in his lineage. And it's still characterized today of what makes one person what we would consider the seed of the woman versus the seed of the sermon. In fact, Jesus made this statement. He told his opponents, you belong to your father, the devil. Or to say it another way, you're the seed of the serpent. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8, we're told, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, or is of the seed of the serpent. So faithfulness to God is what characterizes the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. And so from the seed that comes out of the woman, out of Eve, who comes Seth, you have Abraham, and then you have this great nation that God has made a promise. From your seed, from your offspring, I will make it into many people. So you have Israel. Now let's go back to thinking about the singular seed of the woman envisioned in John chapter three and verse fifteen. Oh, I'm sorry, in Genesis three and verse fifteen. We're told in the Gospel of Luke in the latter part of the third chapter, that Luke traces the lineage from Adam to Seth to Abraham and eventually to the Lord Jesus. From the seed of the woman came Seth, then Abraham, and then there were the many offspring of Israel, and then from Israel that one offspring, the singular he that we see back in Genesis 3 and verse 15. And he, the singular he, he will strike the head of the serpent. The Lord Jesus himself is the promised offspring, the seed of the woman. And Paul may actually be alluding to this, uh, to Genesis 3 and verse 15, the seed of the woman in Galatians 4 and verse 4, which says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent his forth his son born of a woman. Born of a woman, to do what? To redeem those under the law that we might receive The adoption. It is the Lord Jesus himself that delivered a mortal blow to the head of the serpent. But not without the serpent, however, striking his heel. And the serpent struck the heel of the Lord Jesus, continuing in his life and ultimately culminated into his death. But ironically, the striking of the heel of the seed of the woman leading to his death is what led to the seed of the woman striking his head because it's through his death and his resurrection and his enthronement at his ascension in which the Lord Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent, who has crushed the head of the one who has instigated all evil and all sin and all destruction in this good and wicked and evil world. Now, just, just for us to, to think about this, kind of going back to the thought I had earlier about how the seed... Um, is connected to the woman only in two places in Genesis, uh, Genesis 3, 15, and four twenty five. but the rest of the time it's connected to a man. And I, I think there is an allusion here to the fact of, of how Jesus is going to come. He's going to be born of a woman. Now, there's an interesting thing that happens in the, the genealogy listing as it relates to Jesus, both in Matthew and in... Um, uh, Luke is that both of them disconnect his lineage in a way from his father, Joseph. So I was reading through Luke uh, genealogy again, and it traces all the way, the lineage starting with Jesus, it works backward, works backward through, starting with Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ to Joseph as supposed to. Go, just go back and, and read it. But it's interesting how there's this the, the emphasis is on that Jesus came from the woman. And I, this relates specifically to his virgin birth, to his miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit. And I think that that's what's going on here in, in Genesis 3 and how the woman is being used in this very specific and unique role in this, in this way. So that, that's, that's my reason of why that the woman is connected to the seed only uh, twice and how it almost turns like it turns a full circle at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ because he comes born of a woman. He, the, the woman is conceived. And then the genealogy list, they, they disconnect the, uh, Jesus with Joseph, not, not in, a, in a sense of a bad way, but to emphasize the uniqueness of his birth. That he wasn't born by the natural way of conception; he was born miraculously. That he came into this world not affected by the curse of the sin of the world of the, the curse of sin that was instigated by the serpent of the old. He was set apart from that, and then from that he lives his perfect life for us, so that we could receive the righteousness of Christ. And on his death, on his cross. He took the penalty of sin. He took the curse of sin that was instigated by the serpent, which by the way, the very last thing he said on the cross was what? It is finished. He's crushed the head of the serpent. He's trampled it under his foot. So through the the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, the blow to the head of the serpent has been made. And it's only a matter of time before he is completely destroyed. So the head of the serpent has been crushed. There's the, the Bible operates in a, when it talks about things, especially it relates to the New Testament and Jesus, as an already but not yet. So the head of the serpent has been crushed already but not yet in, in a way. Let, let me kind of give you an illustration like this as it relates to snakes in general. Snakes, like many reptiles, retain their reflexes hours after being killed. Even after death, their bite reflex is still very strong. So I think this is an apt imagery or illustration for thinking about the works of the serpent, Satan, following his crushing at the cross. The enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the woman continues even after Jesus' death, resurrection, and exaltation. The serpent is still today exercising his bite reflex, even after his head was struck. And it will continue until Jesus... The offspring of the woman, along with every offspring of the woman, delivers the final and full strike to the serpent's head and destroying him finally and fully forever. So let's think back. So we're, we're, we're stuck on, we're starting with this singular. How this singular seed multiplies into many, this nation, Israel, through Abraham. And through this many comes again this singular seed, I want us also to think about how it goes back to many. How there's now many, through the Lord Jesus Christ, how there's now many offspring of the women. There's many as it relates to the seed of the women. So follow the trajectory beginning in Genesis 3.15. I want us to see where we are now. So Genesis 3.15 promises a singular seed of the woman to strike the head of a serpent. Seth is the beginning of the promise. Seth then leads to Abraham, and to Abraham is the promise of many offspring Israel. This many leads to the singular offspring, the Lord Jesus, and from the Lord Jesus there are many offspring. This is what is envisioned in the New Testament, the singular seed of the woman, the one who was born of the woman. The Lord Jesus came to redeem those who repent and trust in the gospel so that they, according to Galatians 4 and verse 4, may receive the adoption as sons and as daughters. So because of the one who was born of the woman, because of the one who was the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, now because of that, we can be redeemed by his cross and his resurrection and we can be part of that offspring. Be adopted as the offspring of the woman. Well, maybe to say it even a more grander way as we see in the language in Romans chapter 8 that we become essentially the offspring of God, born of God. That's what the, the language of being born again, we become his children, we become his sons, we become his, adop- his daughters because we are adopted by him through the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only are we adopted as his children, but to show how far that adoption goes that we become joint heirs We receive the inheritance with Jesus Christ, who is the only begotten son. Because we are now his children. We are now offspring. We are now the seed of the women, the children of God. And this is something that uh, is explicit even in the book of Galatians. In Galatians 3.29, it says, If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. You're Abraham's offspring. So, through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his redemptive work, we become the offspring of the woman in Christ. Now, notice also earlier when I read Romans 16 and verse 20, under whose foot is the serpent finally crushed? What tells us in Romans that God, the God of peace, will crush Satan under your foot. And the year in that text. Ironically, is the plural year. So because we are part of the offspring of the woman in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we join in and take in part in the crushing of the serpent when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. I think Revelation 12 and verse 17 is even clearer. and shows how this is played out. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. And he went to make war with her and the rest of her offspring. And it describes her offspring as those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. The dragon is the serpent who is called the devil, Satan. And the woman's offspring are the believers. Thus, the woman's child in Christ is the primary offspring. So it's through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is that singular, redemptive, deliverer, strikes to blow to the head of the serpent. And then we, by faith, we join in the Lord Jesus Christ, becoming children of God, becoming part of the offspring of the woman. And then when Jesus Christ comes again, he will come to deliver that final and crushing and full blow, and we too with him. And this gives us an idea of why there is so much hostility and enmity in this world, in regards to Christians. Because there's two separate seeds. There's two separate offsprings. You're either the offspring of the serpent, the offspring of Satan, or you're the offspring of the woman, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way in which you become the offspring of the woman, the child of God, adopted as sons and daughters, is through Jesus Christ, that singular seed, That singular offspring who came and he struck the head of the serpent, crushed him, and he's coming again with us too, to crush him finally and fully forever. And we will live with him, and we will reign with him forever and ever. But to the seed of Satan, to the seed of the serpent, they will be destroyed and they will be judged so we become the seed of a woman by repenting of our sins and trusting in Jesus Christ and his redemptive work on the cross. Let's pray.